Well, I... Okay, of the three congregations, you had the longest clap. (laughs) Well, it's my privilege to be here. And I would like to begin right away by reading scripture. Uh, Romans 3, 21 to 26. Romans 3, 21 to 26. This is the passage that Martin Luther, great Reformation leader of half a millennium ago, called the chief point and the very central place of the epistle to the Romans and of the whole Bible, which is a pretty sweeping claim. Whether you want to go that far or not, the least that must be said is that this passage is one of the most remarkable for bringing together central themes about what Christ accomplished on the cross. Romans 3, 21 to 26. Now, there are some parts of the Bible narrative, for example, uh, that are expansive, easy to read. You follow the narrative through very quickly. There are other parts that are very compressed and condensed, so compressed and condensed, they're a little hard to understand, even amongst Christians of some experience, just because so many theological terms are piled one on top of another so tightly that uh, after a while your eyes glaze over just a wee bit. And this is a paragraph a bit like that. On the other hand, if you take the time to unpack it line by line, line by line, carefully, then every time you read it after that, you see how it all hangs together, and it is wonderfully rich in short compass. Hear then what Scripture says. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his justice because In his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time, so as to be just, and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. I want to get at the passage through a side door. I have a friend in another country who, when he preaches the gospel somewhere, loves to give a kind of bird's-eye overview of the whole Bible. And it sounds something like this. In the beginning, God made absolutely everything, and he made it good. But in our wretched rebellion and corruption, we twisted everything and wanted to become centers of the universe ourselves. In this corruption, we destroyed human relationships. And there is the beginning of um, lust and hatred and envy, of rape and pillage and war and racism, all because we ourselves want to be number one. Out of this also comes um, despoliation. 
Instead of being stewards over the creation where God placed us, we begin to be exploitative. And instead of building up and, and uh, purifying, we merely corrode and corrupt and pollute. And things just degenerate into worse and worse messes. But God doesn't leave himself without witness. In, in, in the goodness and greatness of his heart, he comes again and again to his fallen, rebellious image bearers. For example, he, he raises up an Abraham, it calls him the father of the faithful, and um, enters into a covenant with him. And out of Abraham come the Israelites, the people whom we today call the Jews. And through the Jews, there is mediated to us uh, a raft of wonderful things, the giving of the law, both the moral law that, are, that is summarized in the Ten Commandments and, and the sacrificial structures that teach us something about the nature of sin and righteousness and death, priestly structures that teach us how we must have a mediator between God and us and so forth. And over time, wise people and prophets and kings, all eventually pointing forward to the coming of a Redeemer who would finally liberate us and free us. And then in the fullness of time, he came. Jesus came. And he introduced the dawning of the kingdom. And with his preaching and his miraculous deeds and his compassion and his example, and finally by his cross and resurrection, whereby he shattered death, and overcame evil and despoiled the devil himself and then rose from the dead. He introduced resurrection life and calls us now in faith and obedience to follow him and enter into his kingdom work, pushing back the frontiers of darkness until the very last day when he himself will return and introduce the new heaven and the new earth, the home of righteousness and resurrection existence. Now that's the grand sweep. What do you think of it? Everything I said is true. But there's something huge that has been left out. Oh, I, I, I know in a two-minute summary, there are bound to be things that are left out. But something that is so central that is left out that it, it actually distorts the whole. There is no mention of any of the sin being an offense to God. All the description of sin has been at the horizontal level. How we destroy human relationships how we despoil the earth where God has placed us, and so forth. But nevertheless, the Bible itself, more than 600 times in the Old Testament alone, plus a lot in the New Testament, the Bible speaks of the wrath of God. And this chap rarely ever hints at God being angry because of our sin. And as a result, we have not seen our sins in relationship to him. We have often seen our sins at the horizontal level, the shame we have down here, but we don't think of our sins in relationship to him. Let, let me give you an example. Have you ever woken up in the middle of the night in that half period between being awake and being asleep where your mind suddenly flits to something that you didn't really want it to flit to? And it goes to some horrible thing you've done in the past. Sometime when you said something really stupid and hurt a whole lot of people. Or you did something really embarrassing. And, and you sit there and writhe in your bed for a few minutes. And, 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 until you sort of squish it down and push it away and roll over and go back to sleep. Am I the only one that's ever had experiences like, like that? Tell me. What is it that makes you writhe? 
Is it not in most of our experiences embarrassment and loss of face before other people? How often have we writhed in embarrassment in our consciousness of our stance before the living God? It's all loss of face at the horizontal level, isn't it? But the essence of sin is, first of all, defiance of God. David understands this. King David, the man after God's own heart, yet who manages to commit adultery, seduces a woman next door, impregnates her, and eventually has to bump off her husband, who is off at the front fighting David's wars. He thinks he's got away with it, and then Nathan the prophet confronts him, and after due repentance and, and some, some, some terrible tragedy that takes place, uh, he eventually writes Psalm 51 after the service. Go home and read it. And in Psalm 51, he addresses God, and amongst the things that he says is, against you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. Now, at one level, that is international class codswallop. Balderdash. Because he certainly sinned against Bathsheba. He seduced her. He sinned against her husband, Uriah the Hittite. He had him bumped off. Sinned against the military high command. He corrupted them. Sinned against the baby in Bathsheba's womb. Sinned against his own family. Certainly betrayed them. Sinned against the whole nation. He's supposed to be the chief officer for maintaining justice. In fact, he's, he's corrupt himself. It's hard to think of anybody that he hasn't sinned against. And yet he has the cheek to say, against you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. Yet at the deepest level, it was also exactly right. That is, what makes sin, sin? What makes it so disgusting? What makes it so heinous? What makes it so repulsive? What makes it have such weight is that it is offense before God. It is horrid how we sin against one another. It is infinitely more horrid that we sin against God. That's why the first commandment is to love God with heart and soul and mind and strength. That's the way it ought to be. That's the way we were made. That means that the first sin is not to love God with heart and soul and mind and strength. It's the first sin because it's the sin we always commit when we commit any other sin. If we never broke that one, we'd never break any other law. So if you cheat on your income tax, April 15 is coming, the most offended party is not Uncle Sam. It's God. And if you watch porn, the most offended party is not your spouse or even you corroding yourself. The most offended party is God. Against you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. And that is exactly what my friend in his exposition of the Bible storyline leaves out. He leaves out how much emphasis the Bible puts on God being indignant with us. Yes, as we'll see, the Bible talks of God standing over against us in love. That's true, we'll see that. But the Bible speaks of God standing over against us in wrath too. What do you do with that? If you tell the whole Bible storyline and then come to the cross without ever mentioning this, your understanding of the cross won't have anything to do with the wrath of God. And then the question becomes, have you really understood what the cross is doing as Paul understands it, as Jesus understands it, as the New Testament understands it? 
For when you come to this passage, you cannot help but see that it is itself within a certain context. It comes in the book of Romans after a two and a half chapter unit that sets up the problem that the cross addresses. It begins in chapter 1 verse 18. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of human beings who suppress the truth by their wickedness. And it goes downhill from there. From chapter 118 all the way to 320. The whole point of the apostle is to show how Jew and Gentile alike are guilty of sin and therefore stand under the wrath of God. All this is doing is summarizing the catastrophic failures of the entire Old Testament. And eventually it ends up with a catena of quotations, a list of Old Testament quotations that frankly curl your hair. Chapter 3, verse 10, as it is written, then quotation after quotation, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. In fact, even those of us who are Christians can hear a list of quotations like that and think deep down that we're not supposed to admit it. It does sound a wee bit over the top, doesn't it? I mean, no one who does good? Not one? I mean, what about Médecins Sans Frontières? The French thing that we know as doctors without borders. Aren't they doing quite a lot of good in Haiti right now? There is no one who does good? No, not one? Oh, Paul wouldn't deny that. Of course, he speaks of what we now talk of as common grace. That is, grace that God commonly distributes amongst people. He sends his son and his reign upon the just and the unjust. He, he commonly gives many good gifts so that we do all kinds of good things, borne along by his strength. He's not denying any of that. But let's be quite frank, even when we're doing good things, even in a local church... We do something good, and there's a little part of our heart that is looking over our shoulder, hoping that somebody's watching. Even the good things we do are so often receiving their impress, at least in part, from the desire to be the best or the number one or admired. Isn't that the case? And is the thing done with reference to God so that we acknowledge our dependence upon Him, delighting in Him and wanting to give Him glory? Or is that so far removed from our experience that suddenly these verses, quotations from the Old Testament, all begin to expose who we are? There is no fear of God before their eyes. And you work through these two and a half chapters and you see how everything is with reference to God and how every dimension of our life gets corroded. Sexual dimension... Obedience dimensions, relational dimensions, intellectual dimensions. Here, for example, is Jay Buczyczewski, <clears throat> who for many years was an atheist and taught at a, a university in Texas. I have already noted in passing that everything goes wrong without God, he writes. This is true even of the good things he has given us, such as our minds. One of the good things he has given me is that I've is a stronger than average mind. I don't make the observation to boast. Human beings are given diverse gifts to serve Him in diverse ways. The problem is that a strong mind that refuses the call to serve God has its own way of going wrong. 
When some people flee from God, they rob and kill. When others flee from God, they do a lot of drugs and have a lot of sex. When I fled from God, I didn't do any of those things. My way of fleeing was to get stupid. Though it always comes as a surprise to intellectuals, there are some forms of stupidity that one must be highly intelligent and educated to achieve. God keeps them in his arsenal to pull down mulish pride, and I discover them all. This is how I ended up doing a doctoral dissertation to prove that we make up the difference between good and evil and that we aren't responsible for what we do. I remember now that I even taught these things to students. Now that's sin. It was also agony. You cannot imagine what a person has to do to himself. Well, if you're like I was, maybe you can. What a person has to do to himself to go on believing such nonsense. St. Paul said that the knowledge of God's law is written on our hearts, our consciences also bearing witness. That's drawn right from this passage in Romans. The way natural law thinkers put this is to say that they constitute the deep structure of our minds. That means that so long as we have minds, we can't not know them. Well, I was unusually determined not to know them, therefore I had to destroy my mind. I resisted the temptation to believe in good with as much energy as some saints resist the temptation to neglect good. For instance, I love my wife and children, but I was determined to regard this love as merely a subjective preference with no real and objective value. Think what this did to my very capacity to love them. After all, love is a commitment of the will to the true good of another person. And how can one's will be committed to the true good of another person if he denies the reality of good? Denies the reality of persons, denies that his commitments are in his control. Visualize a man opening up the access panels of his mind and pulling out all the components that have God's image stamped on them. The problem is that they all have God's image stamped on them. So the man can never stop. No matter how many he pulls out, there's still more to pull. I was that man. Because I pulled out more and more, there was less and less that I could think about. But because there was less and less that I could think about, I thought I was becoming more and more focused. Because I believed things that filled me with dread, I thought I was smarter and braver than the people who didn't believe them. I thought I saw an emptiness at the heart of the universe that was hidden from their foolish eyes. But I was the fool. And then he begins to talk about how the grace of God invaded his life. Listen, the wrath of God is disclosed from heaven against all the unrighteousness and wickedness of human beings who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. That's the Bible storyline. That's what Paul addresses in this chapter. And in this chapter, what he does is set forth four things to show how the cross addresses all of this. Number one, Paul sets forth the revelation of God's righteousness, that is this righteousness that we need. He sets forth the revelation of God's righteousness in its relationship to the Old Testament. Verse 21, but now... Apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. Begin with the two little words, but now. Clearly he's making some kind of distinction. Back then, it was done this way, but now it's done another way. What is the nature of that distinction? 
this distinction that's come about with the coming of Christ. Back then, it was such and such, but now it's something else. Many people have argued that it works this way. In the Old Testament, God discloses himself as a God of severity, of holiness, of justice, and therefore of judgment and of wrath. But now, under the terms of the New Covenant, God discloses himself as a God of mercy and compassion and forgiveness and the giving of his Son, a God of love. But however common that way of reading the whole Bible is, wrath, but now love. Severity, but now grace. However common that is, it really won't work. Because after all, the Old Testament that does talk about the justice and wrath of God also insists that God is slow to anger, abounding in mercy, abounding in love and faithfulness. He will not always chide. As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. He knows their frame. He remembers that they are dust. The Bible even goes so far as to present God as a kind of almighty cuckold, an almighty betrayed husband who nevertheless weeps over his faithless wife. Read the prophecy of Hosea. That's also the God of the Bible, of the Old Testament. And then you come to the New. Yes, yes. I mean, the New Testament says some wonderful things about the love of God in Christ Jesus. We'll come to some of them in due course. But on the other hand, who gives us the greatest number of frightening metaphors for hell itself? It's Jesus. And before you settle back too comfortably to thinking that it's all gentleness and forbearance and forgiveness in the New Testament, you start tripping over passages that are so severe it's, it's hard to read them in public. Here's the end of Revelation 14. Another angel who had charge of the fire came from the altar and called in a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, Take your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of grapes from the earth's vine because its grapes are ripe. The angel swung his sickle on the earth, gathered its grapes, and threw them into the great winepress of God's wrath. They were trampled in the winepress outside the city, and blood flowed out of the press, rising as high as the horse's bridles for a distance of 1,600 stadia. Now, it's an image, but it's a pretty horrifying one. In a large vineyard in the ancient world, they had these huge stone vats. And at the bottom of the vats were holes carefully cut in the rock. And under the holes, stone channels that took the grape juice as it was squeezed out, which ran off into stone jars and so on, often underground, collected there and kept cool until it was time to turn it into wine. But now people are being thrown into what is now called the wine press of God's wrath. In the wineries, servant girls would kick off their sandals and pick up their skirts and tramp down those grapes, squishing out the juice. And now people are thrown into the wine press of God's wrath until their blood rises to the height of a horse's bridle for a distance of 200 miles. I know it's only an image. But it's meant to be a shocking image. Now look me in the face and say that the portrayal of God in the New Testament is of a softer, gentler sort.
These first two verses in our paragraph, but now, don't move us from a picture of God as just and severe to a picture of God as loving and merciful. No, it's something else. After all, when you move from the old covenant scriptures to the new, just as the picture of God's love is ratcheted up when you move from the Old Testament to the new, so the picture of God's wrath is ratcheted up when you move from the Old Testament to the new. And I suspect that the reason why we don't see the latter is because most of the depictions of wrath in the Old Covenant have to do with plague and war and natural disasters and the like. And most of us, quite frankly, are much more frightened of those things than we are of hell itself. Which is horrendously unrealistic. No, just, just as the picture of God's love is ratcheted up from the Old Testament to the New, so the picture of God's wrath is ratcheted up from the Old Testament to the New. But then what about the but now? What's that doing here? For the truth of the matter is that these two lines barrel through Scripture. God is holy and just and righteous. God is loving and forbearing and giving and merciful. These two barrel on through the Old Testament, and, and they don't really find any resolution until the cross. And it turns out that's what this very paragraph is about. Well, then what does Paul mean the, by the but now? His verse makes it reasonably clear. Verse 21. But now, apart from the law, that is the law covenant, the law that came through Moses, that was given to the Jews, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known. That is, the righteousness of God that we need, the righteousness of God we need to stand before him. It has been made known now in a different matrix, in a different structure, in a different covenant. It's now no longer under the law covenant. That was given primarily to the Jews. And now we live under a new covenant. But this does not mean that it is so completely new it's cut off from the old. For he immediately goes on to add, Now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. He doesn't say, what I'm talking about is brand spanking new, it's got nothing to do with the old. Just put a big barrier between the Old Testament and the New Testament, and you mustn't cross from one side to the other. No, he's saying there is something new that's happened here. The righteousness that God is disclosing that transforms men and women today, the righteousness we must have to stand before him, is not now manifesting itself under the terms of the old covenant. But, he says, that old covenant, the law and the prophets, did bear witness to it. It did look forward to it. It did anticipate. To it. It, it testified to it. That's the word that Paul uses. And if you've been a Christian for a while, you know something of how this works. In the Old Testament, for example, at that first Passover, the wrath of God passed over houses that were protected by the blood of a lamb, sprinkled on the two doorposts of the house and on the lintel. And that feast was celebrated again and again, year after year, year after year, year after year, century after century, on and on and on, until in the fullness of time, it was seen to be fulfilled in Christ, such that the Apostle Paul, writing to the Corinthians, I gather you're doing a series on Corinthians at the moment, writing to the Corinthians, actually says, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us, and the wrath of God passed over his people, because Christ himself becomes the lamb. 
In other words, there is model and institution. There is the rise of the Davidic monarchy. There's the rise of the tabernacle and and the, 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 the high priestly system. All of these things which show models of what God must ultimately do, building up an anticipation of what comes. The law and the prophets testify to what has now come, not in terms of the whole structure of the past, but a new structure to which the law and the prophets bear witness. Part of the Christian's understanding of the cross turns on an ability to read the whole Bible together and to watch how all the strands come together. The first thing that Paul establishes is the revelation of God's righteousness and its relationship to the Old Testament. Second, Paul sets forth the availability of God's righteousness to all human beings without racial distinction but on condition of faith. He sets forth the availability of God's righteousness to all human beings without racial distinction, but on condition of faith. That, you can see, is already a change because under the terms of the Mosaic Covenant, that was designed primarily for the Israelites. It was designed for them. They became a separate people, a separate nation, a separate covenant community. It was designed for them. The righteousness of God was disclosed primarily to them. But now... Paul sets forth the availability of God's righteousness to all human beings without racial distinction, but on condition of faith. Verses 22 and 23. This righteousness that he's just talked about in verse 21, this righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Now let me pause there for a moment. It sounds reasonable enough. It's what our translations say. But there is in the original a pair of words that sound a bit different than they do in in, in the English language. Do you see, in English we say, given through faith in Jesus Christ, and the word faith is the noun, to all who believe. That's the verb. It means the same thing, faith and believe. One is the noun, one is the verb. But because they come in English from different stems, they sound as if they're different words. Faith and believe, they don't sound the same thing. In the original, it's the same root. So it sounds a bit like this. It's not very good English, but you'll see the point. This righteousness came through trust in Jesus Christ to all who trust. And you say, okay, I hear the trust, trust, but isn't that a bit repetitive? It came through faith, through trust in Jesus Christ to all who trust. Why does he repeat himself? But you're supposed to notice it. And ask why he repeats himself. And the reason he repeats himself is because of the little word, all. Follow the text again. This righteousness is given through trust in Jesus Christ. To all who trust. It's emphasizing the all. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. For all, there's the all again, have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's what connects this paragraph with the previous two and a half chapters. The previous two and a half chapters have gone out of their way to show that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But now this righteousness from God has come to those who have faith in Jesus. To all who have faith in Jesus, for there's no difference, all have sinned. In other words, the matrix in which this righteousness from God has come is no longer under the terms of the Old Covenant where it was designed for Israelites. It's designed for Gentiles, like most of us in this room. What are there, 800 people here? Most of us, I suppose, are European Americans. 
a handful of African Americans, maybe the odd Hispanic American. But even in this fairly monochrome bunch, you have older and younger, well-educated with book learning, well-educated with wrenches, some who know how to do petty point and some who know how to shoot deer. There's quite a lot of diversity here, I'm sure. And part of my job takes me most years to every continent except Antarctica. And so I've met brothers and sisters in Christ in mud and thatch huts in the jungles of Papua New Guinea, just a generation and a half away from being headhunters. I've met people in Kuala Lumpur who've spent part of their life in jail just because they're Christians. I've met Christians in Kyrgyzstan, Christians in South Africa, black and white, some black ones in Soweto, pastors who tell me that the average pastor has seven funerals every Saturday of people who have died of AIDS that week. And Christians in New York. And even with my accent, the odd Christian in Canada. And the Bible says that around the throne, on the last day, there will be men and women from every tongue and tribe and people and nation secured by the blood of Christ. If you want to start dealing with racism, bring people to the cross. There is a universality of need. We are all sinners. There is a universality of forgiveness. Because there is a righteousness that has come from heaven, given on condition of faith to all men and women, on condition of faith, regardless of racial distinction. Do you hear the word? This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's the second thing that Paul establishes. Third, Paul sets forth the source of God's righteousness in God's gracious provision of Christ Jesus as the propitiation for our sins. Let me repeat that. I know that these words have to be explained. Paul sets forth God's righteousness in God's gracious provision of Christ Jesus as the propitiation for our sins. Now, if you're reading the King James Version or the ESV, propitiation is the word used. Some translations like the NIV and the TNIV have sacrifice of atonement. Some, like the RSV, have uh, expiation. One actually has remedy for defilement. What is the word? What does it mean? And who cares? What difference does it make? Is this just more theologians having fun playing learned games? In fact, Paul wants us to be quite clear what he means. Propitiation is a sacrifice that makes God propitious, that is, favorable. If we had a noun for favorableness, we could have favorableness here instead of propitiation. Propitiation is the sacrifice by which God is made propitious, favorable. In the pagan world, it worked like this. You had various gods over various domains. And 
then you offered sacrifices, you the worshiper, offered sacrifices to the various gods so that they would bless you in those domains. So you want to make a sea voyage from the eastern end of the Mediterranean all the way to Tarshish, modern Spain, and you want Neptune, the god of the sea, to be on your side. So you offer sacrifices to Neptune. You want to make a speech somewhere, then you want the god of communication to be on side. So you offer something to Mercury in the Latin world, or, or Hermes in the Greek world, the god of communication, because you want these gods to be favorable. You want them to be propitious. You offer a propitiation so that they become propitious, favorable. That's the way it works in the pagan world. But this text says something shocking. In the pagan world, we, human beings, offer propitiating sacrifices to the gods. This text is saying that God himself, not the human beings, God himself set forth Christ Jesus as the propitiation. So God is propitiating God? God is offering Jesus as a sacrifice so that God himself becomes propitious? That's what the text seems to say, all right. But in the 1930s, there was a professor in Britain called Dodd. D-O-D-D. And he really didn't like the notion of atonement taught in the Bible. And this is where he fastened a lot of attention. He said, it doesn't make sense to speak of God, propitiating God. Moreover... The Bible teaches us that God is already so propitious toward us, so favorable toward us, so loving toward us, that he sends his son. God so loved the world that he gave his son. If he's already so propitious toward us that he gives us his son, then how can the son be said to make God propitious? God loves us so much he gives us his son in the first place. So how can his death on the cross now be making God Favorable toward us. God's already so favorable us, favorable toward us, he's given us his son in the first place. So he said, this can't be propitiation. It has to be expiation. Now what he meant by that is this. Propitiation is the sacrifice by which God is made propitious. Expiation is the sacrifice by which sin is canceled. In other words, the object of propitiation is God to make God favorable. The object of expiation is sin to cancel it. So now God is so favorable, he sends forth his son, and his son goes to the cross as the expiation, the canceller of our sin. And eventually, Christians wrote back and said, wait a, wait, wait a minute, what, what about all the passages that do speak of the wrath of God? Even here in Romans, we've just seen the context. From 118 on, you're talking about the wrath of God. Uh, you, you've got to deal with that. Somehow the Bible does speak of God's wrath. You, you, you can't say that there's no wrath present to deal with. And Dodd replied, well, you've got to understand the wrath this way. It's, it's not real wrath. There's nothing personal in it. God's not personally upset or vindictive. I mean, he just loves us, loves us so much he gives us his son. So you have to understand the wrath to be a sort of principle of retribution. You do bad stuff and bad stuff happens to you. That's all it is. Nothing personal. But do you hear what he's done? He has just sided with Job's miserable comforters. Job, are you suffering? It's because you've done bad stuff, Job. If you want to understand the Haiti situation, oh yeah, it's all that suffering because obviously they deserve it. That's where that theology leads. They deserve it worse than we do. That's why they've suffered and we haven't. So what is given as a way of 
somehow avoiding God's wrath turns out to be a horrendous way of looking at disasters and, and suffering in the world. It's not Jesus' way. When Jesus talks about natural disasters in Luke chapter 13, verses 1 to 5, another passage you can look up when you get home. He says, do you think that the people on whom the Tower of Siloam fell, crushing 18 of them, do you think that they were more wicked than other people? Huh? Is that what you think? Because the Tower fell on them and not on you? No, he said, but I tell you the truth. Unless you repent, you shall all likewise perish. You see, he doesn't deny that there is a sense in which judgment falls on human beings because of sin. But in fact, from the Bible's perspective, what is really startling is that we are not all destroyed. That is, there is so much decay and corruption and anti-godness around in the entire human race that sometimes God does let slip some judgment and anticipation of judgment to come. And it should not be a kind of disaster that drives us to think, oh, they really deserved it and I don't. What should we say? Haiti deserves that and America deserves Katrina? Where does that ending end? No, 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 no. Don't you see? Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. We all stand under the judgment of God. And we are able to continue only in grace. We need help. We must give help. The Bible does not offer a karmic system. Good karma, bad karma. Do good, you'll have goodness. Do bad, you get clobbered. It, it presupposes instead that there's enough badness around to condemn us all. And yet God in his mercy still comes to us in grace and transforms human beings. Besides, if you're going to say that the wrath of God in Scripture is merely a kind of bad karma, then why don't you say that the love of God in Scripture is also not personal, it's only good karma? But that's not what the Bible says. Both God's wrath and God's love are depicted in gloriously personal terms. And we have to come to grips with them. In fact, Dodd, toward the end of his life, he became so angry at anything to do with the Christian doctrine of atonement. He became very cynical. Any notion of substitution, Christ dying in our place, he found barbaric and, 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 and dismissive. And one day, when he was chairing the committee that produced the New English Bible, when they were working on this very passage from the Greek Testament, he was heard to mutter under his breath as he read these verses from the Apostle Paul. He was heard to mutter, what rubbish. Whereupon someone on the committee wrote a limerick. There was a professor called Dodd, whose name was exceedingly odd. He spelled, if you please, his name with three D's, while one is sufficient for God. <laughs> now, that is a quintessentially English way of dealing with theological controversy. It's got nothing to do with anything, but it's quite funny. No, no, no. You cannot avoid the fact that the Bible actually does speak of the wrath of God. This word for propitiation is used 21 times in the Greek Old Testament, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And 14 of them use it to talk about the top of the mercy seat in the altar in the most holy place where the blood of bull and goat was shed to turn aside the wrath of God once a year on the Day of Atonement on Yom Kippur. That's the background of this word. 
It includes expiation. You cancel the sin. And by canceling the sin, you are also averting the wrath of God. That's why the NIV has sacrifice of atonement. It's trying to choose an expression that includes expiation and propitiation. But that's what's at issue. It cancels sin. It turns aside the wrath of God. Hear the text. We are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as an atoning sacrifice, a propitiation through the shedding of his blood. It satisfied God's wrath. And this is to be received by faith. Do you know one of the reasons why we have a hard job sorting that out? It seems a bit strange to us at first. Have you ever used as an illustration, when you're trying to share your faith with somebody, you're trying to present the gospel to somebody, have you ever used an illustration like this one? I have myself. There is a judge sitting on the bench. The court case is over. And the thug now receives sentence. The judge pronounces sentence. He sentences him to $5,000 fine or three years in jail or whatever. And then the judge gets off the bench takes off his robes and goes down and writes the check to the thug. Or he goes to prison instead of the thug. And we use that kind of illustration to show what substitution looks like. Substitutionary atonement. Have you ever used an expression, uh, an illustration like that? Yes? No? Well, I have. And it's not bad for getting across the notion of substitution, what God has done. But it's slightly misleading, just the same. The reason is this. In our systems in the Western world, in judicial systems in the Western world, the judge is always removed from the crime. Supposing the thug had beaten up the judge. Once the judge recognized that the thug had beaten him up so that the judge himself was the victim in the crime, he would be forced under our system to recuse himself from that case. Some other judge would have had to be brought in. That's why in our system of jurisprudence, one never speaks of the criminal sinning against the judge. He has offended the court, or he has offended in Britain the crown, or he has offended the republic, or he has offended the law, or he has offended the state, but never the judge. The judge, in other words, is removed from the crime. The judge is an independent arbiter of the system that is bigger than he is, of the law. That's what he is supposed to do. He is never the offended party. But what about God? God is always, as we have seen, the most offended party. Everyone who is brought to the bar of God's justice has offended God. And God never, ever recuses himself. God is not the independent arbiter of a system bigger than he is. He is bigger than the system is. He has established what is right and wrong. And he is the one who is personally offended. And he never recuses himself, but his justice is always perfect. Nevertheless, he never errs. His knowledge is perfect. His justice is spectacular. On the last day, not only will justice be done, it will be seen to be done. And he never recuses himself. Do you see, in our system, if a judge came down off the bench and said to the thug who has just received his sentence, I'll take the sentence for you, that would be spectacularly unjust because the judge doesn't have the right to do that. 
That's not the judge's job. The judge is supposed to be an independent, free, even-handed arbiter of a bigger system. But supposing the judge himself is the one who was offended. He wants to preserve the principles of integrity, of justice, of righteousness. But because he's that kind of God, he also wants to forgive the offender. What does he do? Tell me. Would God in your eyes be more admirable, more deserving of worship? If he came to Pol Pot after the slaughter of one-third of the population of Cambodia, or he came to Joseph Stalin, or he came to Hitler standing outside the gates of Auschwitz and said, it's all right, I forgive you, no sweat, I'm pretty generous. Would that God become more attractive to you? Wouldn't you wonder where God's justice was? And those are merely the sins at the horizontal level. What about the offense against him? But if we insist on God's justice with respect to Paul Pot, must I not also insist on God's justice with respect to Don Carson? Where is the end of that? For the truth of the Bible is God does stand over against me in wrath. Rightly so. But he stands over against me in love as well. The God of the Bible shows himself to be so holy that he stands over against us in righteous wrath. Because of our sin. But the God of the Bible stands over against us in spectacularly self-giving love. Just because he is that kind of God. How do these things come together? They barrel through this Bible storyline until they meet in this verse. God himself. Not human beings, not you and me. God himself sets forth Christ Jesus as the propitiating sacrifice canceling our sin and averting God's justice because Christ bears our sin, our guilt in his own body on the tree. Two chapters later, Paul will write, God commends his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God in the person of his son bears our guilt, our shame, our degradation and our punishment in his own body on the tree. The judge in the human court, if he manipulates things and, 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 and pays someone else's fine, he's perverted the system. But God owns the system where he is offended. And he finds a way such that his justice is satisfied. While he himself in utter self-giving, self-giving provides a substitute by which we are Redeemed, set free, set free from the slavery of sin and death. What Paul does is set forth the source of God's righteousness in God's gracious provision in Christ Jesus as the propitiation for our sins. And finally, 
God sets forth the demonstration of the righteousness of God through the cross of Jesus Christ. He sets forth the demonstration of the righteousness of God, the justice of God, through the cross of Jesus Christ. 25b and 26. This is what Paul writes. He did this. God did this. That is, he set forth his son as the propitiating sacrifice that averts God's own wrath, that satisfies him so that the wrath is put aside. He did this to demonstrate his, and you'd almost expect, love. But it's not what the text says. Oh, there is a sense in in which we must always see that the cross is the demonstration of God's love for us. God so loved the world that he gave his son. Here in his love, not that we love God, but that God loved us and gave his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That's what 1 James 4 says. Oh, there is spectacular love displayed here because God did not owe us salvation. But what this text says is something different. He did this. God did this, Paul writes, to demonstrate his justice. And then he repeats it a line later. He did this to demonstrate his justice at the present time. So as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. If he had justified us, declared us to be just when we're not, without in some sense paying for this sin, he would not be just. He would be the God who doesn't care at Auschwitz. Or the God who doesn't care when he sees Don Carson's sins. But God presented Christ bearing our sin so that in the cross he would demonstrate that he is just as well as the one who justifies the ungodly. He does it to demonstrate his justice. You see, that's why those two themes barrel through Scripture and finally meet in the cross. Do you want to see the place where God's love is most spectacularly demonstrated? Study the cross. Do you want to see the place where God's justice is most spectacularly demonstrated? Study the cross. Indeed, all the sins committed in Old Testament times were never properly punished. The sins committed by people who knew God and who walked by faith. The sins of an Abraham or a Moses or an Ezekiel. That's what the text says. We read, God did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand. That is, the sins committed by his people before the coming of Christ unpunished. Oh, they had some temporal punishments here and there, but they didn't face hell itself. The sins were unpunished. They were still not dealt with. But now he did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so that even with respect to them and with respect to us, he is just and the one who justifies the ungodly. There is a sense in which the entire drama of Scripture develops this dilemma of God being loving and God being just. How will these themes come together? And this passage is the answer. 
dilemma wretched. How shall holiness of brilliant light unshaded tolerate rebellion's fetid slime and not abate in its own glory, compromised at best? Dilemma wretched. How can truth attest that God is love and not be shamed by hate and wills enslaved and bitter death, the freight of curse deserved, the human rebel's mess? The cross. The cross. The sacred meeting place where, knowing neither compromise nor loss, God's love and holiness in shattering grace, the great dilemma slays the cross, the cross. The holy, loving God whose dear son dies by this is just. And one who justifies. Brothers and sisters in Christ, everything that we have in the gospel comes from right here. Forgiveness of sins, it comes from here. The gift of the Holy Spirit by which we are regenerated, it's secured by right here, for we have been reconciled to God. And because we have been reconciled to God by Christ's work, he pours out his spirit upon us. The communion of saints, new brothers and sisters in Christ, in all kinds of arrays, despite our sins and our failures in every local church, including this one, the possibility of these deep links establishing the family of God together, all secured by the cross. Ongoing forgiveness of sin, we still need this gospel every day. Invited back to the cross again and again, knowing that we are accepted before God, not because we've made it and we're so wonderful, but because of this gospel in which our sins have been borne by Christ Jesus on the cross. We confess our sins and learn again that he is faithful and just. Just in the light of what Christ has already accomplished. Just to forgive us our sins and to purify us from all unrighteousness. And the prospect of life beyond the grave, of a new heaven and a new earth, a home of righteousness, of resurrection existence, all secured by the cross. Where God's love and justice meet, and God shows himself to be forever and always just, and the one who justifies the ungodly. Let us pray.